Hello, and thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of A Feminist in Progress. A quick content warning, this episode deals heavily with discussions of sexual assault, alcohol consumption, and rape culture in general. If any of these subject matters triggers any personal trauma, please take care of yourselves first and skip this episode or come back to it when you're ready. And now, welcome to this week's episode. another high-profile campus sexual assault. A former Stanford swimmer convicted of three felonies after attacking an unconscious young woman. But it was his six-month sentence that provoked national outrage. Now, after serving just half his jail term, he's free. Here's ABC's Matt Gutman with the fallout. In mid to late 2016, the name Brock Turner became infamous amidst the highly publicized People vs. Brock Turner criminal case. Brock Allen Turner, then a 19-year-old star athlete at Stanford University, was on trial for sexually assaulting 22-year-old Chanel Miller, formerly known as Emily Doe, on Stanford University campus on January 18, 2015. His is a name I no longer want to give further infamy and remembrance in the minds of listeners. Henceforth, I will stop using his name and start using he-him pronouns or generic descriptions in reference to him. At the time, he was a freshman student at Stanford where he was enrolled in a swimming scholarship. He seemed to have his life ahead of him. A young man with potential to be a future national athlete, seemingly enjoying his American college experience. But on March 30, 2016, he was found guilty of three felonies. Assault with intent to rape an intoxicated woman, sexually penetrating an intoxicated person with a foreign object, and sexually penetrating an unconscious person with a foreign object. Prosecutors recommended that he be given a six-year sentence based on the purposefulness of his action, specifically the effort to hide the activity and Miller's intoxicated state. However, Santa Clara's county probation officials recommended that he receive a moderate county jail sentence with formal probation based on his lack of criminal history, youth, and expression of remorse. His family and friends defended him in court, with his father pleading for a lenient sentence for his son, describing in his statement how his son had been consumed by worry, anxiety, fear, and depression. He said that his son's life will, quote, never be the one he dreamed about and worked so hard to achieve, end quote. The father further claimed, Quote, that is a steep price to pay for 20 minutes of action out of his 20-plus years of life. End quote. A childhood friend of his defended him in a letter where she blamed alcohol consumption and universities for advertising themselves as party schools and said that he came from a respectable family. Meanwhile, a family friend of theirs, who also happened to be a retired federal prosecutor, also blamed the assault on alcohol consumption. According to this family friend, he made a mistake in drinking excessively to the point where he could not fully appreciate that his female acquaintance was so intoxicated. I know he did not go to that party intending to hurt or entice or overpower anyone. At least 39 people defended the young man's character in court, including an ex-girlfriend who described him as kind 
loving, and respectful. In September 2016, the convicted rapist was released from Santa Clara County Jail, and a swarm of reporters greeted him as he exited with a package of hate mail. He only served three months of his six-month sentence. The judge assigned his case, Aaron Persky, saying he feared the severe impact a prison term would have on the star college swimmer. Now, the disgraced former Stanford University student is hardly the first promising young man to be publicly held accountable for his crime. It was incredibly emotional, incredibly difficult even for an outsider like me to watch what happened as these two young men that had such promising futures, star football players, very good students, literally watched as, as they believed their life fell apart. One of, one of In 2013, two Steubenville, Ohio high school football players, Trent Mace and Malik Richmond, were found guilty of raping a 16-year-old girl. The Steubenville, Ohio rape case was also highly publicized and likewise involved alcohol consumption and discussions about consent when one party is incapacitated and or intoxicated. After the judge read his decision, the boys sobbed and it was reported that one of them told his lawyer, My life is over. Both boys were seemingly remorseful in court, but the damage had been done. Western film and television have told stories that echo these real-life stories. For example, Canadian teen soap Degrassi The Next Generation, during its 13th season, included a narrative arc centered on the rape of one of its main characters. The 2014 subplot of the show seemed to be based on the aforementioned Steubenville, Ohio rape case, with the character's half-naked photos as she was passed out drunk were circulated online. The two-part episode included a plot element of a video of the character's sexual assault by her schoolmates. Then there's the Netflix teen drama 13 Reasons Why, which also was a show that centered on a rape subplot. However, it is not a piece of media that I personally recommend for viewing since I find the show's gratuitous portrayal of both sexual assault and suicide questionable. But a recent piece of media is part of why I bring up the topic of rape culture, specifically the interconnection of heavy alcohol consumption among young people and campus sexual assault. I want to talk about this film not only because it's one of my favorite movies I've seen in a while, not only because it subverts the revenge fantasy trope in films by being a film where women were mostly calling the shots behind the scenes, but because it's a film that says, Hey, this has been happening for longer than we care to admit. And what the fuck are we doing to change it? Part 1. The Worst Nightmare I mean, it's every guy's worst nightmare getting accused like that. Can you guess what every woman's worst nightmare is? Promising Young Woman is a critically acclaimed, award-winning film written and directed by Emerald Fennell and stars Carrie Mulligan, whom we stand as Cassie, a woman hell-bent on avenging her best friend who was a victim of rape during their time in med school. 
There are shades of the aforementioned real-life high-profile cases that can be seen in the movie. Cassie's friend, Nina, was raped at a college party where she was passed out drunk, hence the discourse of alcohol consumption and the double standards therein. There was a video of the sexual assault that circulated among their peers. Nina was re-traumatized by the legal system, and her rapist was framed as a promising young man whose future mattered. There are also notable differences. Nina's rapist was not convicted and, in fact, was protected by the university. He hired a fierce defense lawyer whose tactics allowed him to get away with the crime. He got to live out the good life by going on to become a well-respected doctor and was about to get married. As opposed to real-life survivor Chanel Miller, uh, more on her later, Nina's trauma was forgotten by her peers dismissed as a girl-who-cried-rape story. This dark comedy thriller is an example of a piece of media that illustrates the rape culture pyramid. Created by 11th Principle Consent, an organization that promotes awareness about consent within the Bern community and beyond, the rape culture pyramid illustrates sets of behaviors that create rape culture. But what is rape culture? The concept of rape culture traces its roots in the 1970s, during the second wave of feminism. And it provides a critique of the conventional belief that rape is an anomalous act of a deviant individual. Sort of a monster, a fiend. Rape culture says, no, rape is actually connected to and enabled by everyday social and cultural practices. According to academics such as Nicola Gavey and Charlene Sen, there are two interlocking patterns that are identified as creating the conditions of possibility for sexual violence. First, victim blaming and other discourses that minimize and excuse rape. Second, taken for granted features of everyday heterosexuality that normalize and naturalize sexual aggression and female sexual passivity. That's where the rape culture pyramid comes in. Imagine, if you will, a triangle with words in a background gradient of dark red at the top peak, orange in the center, and yellow at the bottom. On the side of the pyramid is an arrow and three words explaining the gradient. Normalization leads to degradation, which leads to assault. At the bottom of the pyramid, the level of normalization, is a set of behaviors that includes sexist attitudes, rape jokes, locker room banter, catcalling, unwanted non-sexual touch, and stalking. There's even a line from Promising Young Woman that is an example of the level of normalization. When those behaviors are normalized, you know, when they are dismissed as boys will be boys behavior, for instance, they lead to the level above that, degradation. The behaviors belonging to this level are flashing and exposing, unsolicited nude pictures, groping, non-consensual photo or video, revenge porn, or the distribution of sexually private images without the consent of the subject, safe word violations, coercion or manipulation, threats, and victim blaming and shaming. Recall, if you will, 
mid-2017 when the Filipino public was up in arms and outrage over the revelations of the widespread growth of the Pastor Hokage Bible study groups. Remember those? They were groups curated by young Filipino men, usually with Facebook as their primary platform, and served to be a virtual space for posting, sharing, commenting, and bonding over sexual content ranging from racy photos to downright pornographic material, often without the consent or even knowledge of mostly female subjects. These hokages, a term bastardized from the Japanese manga and anime series Naruto to now refer to a man who is talented in enticing women to do his sexual bidding, they bond over their materials by commenting Amen to express approval. And in order to be a pastor or a member of the group, a new user must present an ambag or a contribution of new content for others to amen over. Now, it doesn't take a lot to know that these spaces are obviously misogynistic because A, the members are exclusively male, whose ages ranged from 20s to 40s, and B, they bond over videos and or photos with subjects who are exclusively women or girls. Yes, girls. Because there were allegedly content of underage girls. Sit with that for a moment. Take a moment. You know, pause if you will. I told you all this episode would be heavy. At the top most of that pyramid is the level of assault, which includes behaviors such as contraceptive sabotage, stealthing, or the covert condom removal during sexual intercourse, molestation, drugging, and rape. In short, the rape culture pyramid shows us that tolerance of behaviors at the bottom supports or excuses those higher up. As I mentioned, the film shows the different levels of behaviors listed in the pyramid. In the opening credits alone, our protagonist gets catcalled and mistaken for doing the walk of shame. And I found it interesting that when she stops to stare her catcallers down, they grow uncomfortable from the long and silent stare she gives them. And their catcalls of, how much? Why don't you just give us a little smile? And What's wrong? Can't take a joke? They take a sharp turn to the fuck are you staring at and fuck you then. No apology, just a sharp, verbally violent turn. The film can be summed up as a revenge fantasy of sorts, with Cassie spending most of the movie's runtime avenging her best friend Nina. It's an oversimplification of events, but yes. But the film's execution of the revenge fantasy is not like Kill Bill with its violent depiction of the bride avenging herself for the wrong done against her. Cassie exacts revenge on five people, each of whom contribute to the rape culture pyramid when you think about it. First, there's Madison, a friend of Nina's and Cassie's from college. Madison embodies the behavior of victim shaming and blaming. Even years after Nina's rape and dropping out of med school, Madison stands by her belief that Nina was partly to blame for her own rape by being drunk, even telling Cassie, 
if you have a reputation for sleeping around, then maybe people aren't gonna believe you when you say something's happened. I mean, it's crying wolf. She doubles down, saying, When you get that drunk, things happen. Don't get blackout drunk all the time and then expect people to be on your side when you have sex with someone you don't want to. Second, there's Dean Elizabeth Walker, the dean of the university where Nina was raped by a classmate and which eventually led to her dropping out of med school. The dean also embodies the behavior of victim blaming and shaming, but more importantly, the way that systems of power fail to protect victims slash survivors. Not only does she not remember who Nina is, yet fondly talks about Nina's rapist or the fact that she was the authority figure Nina reported her rape to, but she dismissed it as a he-said-she-said, said, telling Cassie, None of us want to admit when we've made ourselves vulnerable, when we've made a bad choice. And those choices, those mistakes can be so damaging and really regrettable. She even has a line that feels almost lifted out of real-life arguments. What would you have me do? Ruin a young man's life every time we get an accusation like this? Third is the lawyer Jordan Green. He was the defense lawyer of Nina's rapist, one who resorted to tactics such as coercion and threats in order to get Nina to drop her case. Out of all the players that Cassie confronts, he was the only one who showed a genuine remorse even admitting to Cassie that he was so consumed by guilt over the case that he was put on sabbatical. He tells Cassie he can never forgive himself for what he had done. But Cassie tearfully extends forgiveness anyway. I saw this character as someone who represents the way the judicial system works, specifically the way rape cases often serve to re-traumatize victims by not only having them relive their rape also having their humanity and credibility put on trial by the defense. Taylor Swift talked about this experience when she had her sexual assault trial in 2017, which, even if she won her case, she described the process as one that is so dehumanizing. Chanel Miller also wrote about the experience in her memoir, Know My Name, writing, quote, his history included his childhood, education, summer jobs, sweet relationships. My history was blackouts one through five. My character was just as much on trial as his character. My behavior, my composure, my likability were also being evaluated. But there was nothing to suggest that I was a person extracted from a full life, surrounded by people who cared about me." End quote. Then there is Al Monroe, Nina's rapist himself. The promising young man himself whose interests were protected by the systems of power, who was given the benefit of the doubt, who graduated magna cum laude in med school and eventually went on to become a successful doctor, and in the movie is about to get married. I didn't do anything! We, we were kids! Oh, if I hear that one more time... At the film's climax, when Cassie finally comes face-to-face -face with Al, he insists that he did nothing wrong, that the encounter between him and Nina was consensual, that they were just kids when it happened. I guess when they are young, 
they assume they know nothing. Part 2 But I'm a nice guy. I'm a nice guy. Are you? It is in the character Al Monroe that we go beyond the rape culture pyramid and into how sexual scripts and the fluidity of masculinities operate in individuals. He is framed as a promising young man with the career and the relationship, but he is also a young man who sexually assaulted a woman when she was passed out drunk. Again, rape culture tells us that those two aspects can coexist in an individual. His peers do not remember him for what he did to Nina. No, Cassie is the only one to remember. And instead, they know him for who he is in the present. Chanel Miller has seen this firsthand, writing in her memoir, and I quote, During the trial, the jury was forced to pick. Is he wholesome or monstrous? But I never questioned that any of what they said about him was true. In fact, I need you to know that it was all true. The friendly guy who helps you move and assists senior citizens in the pool is the same guy who assaulted me. One person can be capable of both. Society often fails to wrap its head around the fact that these truths often coexist. They are not mutually exclusive. Bad qualities can hide a good person. That's the terrifying part. Indeed, that is terrifying. Personally, I still grapple with the idea of having to reconcile those coexisting truths. You know, that rapists can be good people in the eyes of those who know them personally, but in the eyes of their victim or victims, they're simply the rapist, their source of trauma. One of my worst nightmares as a woman is being romantically involved with a man who turns out to have a history of accusation or accusations of sexual violence, proven or otherwise, or complicity in another man's act of sexual violence. Perhaps you get it. You know, you're getting to know someone, the compatibility and chemistry are, are there, only to find out. So I find it interesting that the film actually provoked that thought in me, especially with the latter situation. Sociologists John H. Gagnon and William Simon came up with the sexual script theory as a way for us to understand processes of sexual decision making. According to them, these sexual scripts operate on three levels, cultural scenarios, which provide structures for expected sexual encounters and provide norms for initiation of sexual intimacy, interpersonal scripts, which guide interaction between sexual partners but are informed by cultural scenarios so that private interactions have public influences, and intrapsychic scripts, or the conversations individuals have with themselves as they negotiate sexual situations and consider others' reactions to their behavior. Sexual scripts are basically guidelines for appropriate sexual behavior and encounters. So, think of it like it's a movie, where each partner in consensual encounters 
is an actor following a script rather than improvising. It must needs be said that these sexual scripts are meant to be abstract and provide guidelines, especially cultural scenarios, and they do not dictate sexual interactions. It must needs be also said that sexual scripts can and do change so, and that alternate scripts are created in interaction. As a matter of fact, part of the sexual script theory is a recognition of society as ever-transforming and change as made possible and visible through sexual interaction. There's a lot to unpack here. So let's try unpacking. For a moment, let's entertain the argument that these sexual assaults were actually sexual interactions gone wrong. And before I get super fucking cancelled for saying that, I must make clear that I do not agree with the argument that rape is simply sex gone wrong. Consent is a fundamental aspect of sexual scripts. It must be given, expressed clearly and enthusiastically. It can also be revoked. In sexual assaults where a victim is incapable of properly consenting, I wonder what sexual scripts rapists follow. This is why the term sexual assault is more about taking rather than about sex itself. Real sex is meant to be a mutually beneficial exchange among those involved, where the power is supposed to fluidly shift back and forth. It is meant to be responsive, where the pleasure comes from when parties involved pay attention and actively engage. A factor in these sexual scripts in heterosexual scenarios is the type of masculinity performed by men. And yes, I'm tackling masculinities once again. Men's sexualities and multiple masculinities are complex, but nonetheless present. It must needs be said that alternate masculinities do exist. That is, the type of masculinities that deviate from dominant constructions of masculinity, ones that I've talked about in my Not All Men episode. The presence of multiple masculinities in individual men, I say once again, is what makes rapists complex and terrifying. The hybrid masculinities that exist within the same person mean that men can construct masculinities that incorporate dangerous and extreme dominance and aggression, as well as sensitivity and empathy. It's how the Al Monroes of the world can sexually assault the Ninas of the world in the supposed privacy of college parties and still be seen as promising young men who have their careers ahead of them and be loving men to their fiancés. Scholars Beth Montemuro and Christina Riemann Murphy offer the concept of private masculinities as, quote, a means of making sense of how boys and men may do gender in private, intimate situations without feeling conflicted about their public expressions of masculinity in other contexts." End quote. Different studies show that teen boys and young men publicly demonstrate sexual confidence, rejection of homosexuality and femininity, sexual objectification and harassment of girls and women, but privately demonstrate tenderness towards their girlfriends or other women in their life, emotional vulnerability and or expression of desire for romance, love, commitment, trust, and even anxiety about 
early sexual experiences. If you think about it, a heterosexual young man expresses his masculinity based on the space he is in. He's more likely to be romantic around his partner when she encourages such traditionally feminine expression than he is around his peers. In fact, if he did that, you know, if he talked about romance or other soft things around his boys, he'd be discouraged or even shamed for doing so. And I've seen this firsthand. Now, okay, story time. I had a friend who was capable of expressing vulnerability when it was just the two of us. But when we went out for drinks one night and his male friends joined us, he became someone else. In that booth, he was practically bragging about the girls he'd slept with and showing off how much he can drink as they pre-gamed before partying at the club above the bar we were at. Michael Kimmel, yes, the same sociologist I mentioned in the Not All Men episode, he notes that men fear the revelation that they are not, quote, man enough, so they feel the pressure and expectation to consistently demonstrate or prove their support for dominant masculinity. This type of dominant masculinity is what we now often refer to as toxic masculinity. At the risk of oversimplifying things, I believe this is part of what makes the Almond Rose of the world the way they are. They have conflicting performances of masculinity. And on top of that, when that performance of dominant masculinity leads to violence against women, they are protected by systems and are extended more empathy than the victim. Now, the film repeatedly emphasizes that Al is seen as a nice guy. And there are other characters who embody nice guy-ism in the film. You know, whether in the form of minor characters who swoop in and rescue Cassie when she's drunk at a bar. Um, one of them is played by the lovable actor Adam Brody, best known for his role in the early 2000s show The O.C. Or the guy who pretends to be a feminist just to charm Cassie, this time played by McLovin from Superbad. Uh, aka the actor who was one of my celebrity crushes when I was in college because of the movie Kick-Ass. Or the one major character who seemingly presents hope for Cassie to abandon her quest for vengeance and instead open herself up to a romantic relationship. This character, Ryan, is played by Bo freaking Burnham who's famous for being a stand-up comedian who got his start as a YouTuber and for directing the indie film 8th grade. Go check him out, he's hella funny. And I admit, he truly was charming in the film as Cassie's former classmate in med school and now works as a pediatric surgeon. I found Bo Burnham's natural comedic timing and wit work well with the character. Seriously. I couldn't help but fall in love with the character as Cassie was getting to know him in the beginning. I was watching and thought to myself, do I? Am I? Am I in love with this character? Do I love Ryan? No, you fucking don't. You do not. Haters gonna hate, lovers gonna love. You need to reject both sides of the spectrum to leave it. 
Healthy middle. The subplot of the blossoming romance between Cassie and Ryan plays out like a romantic comedy of sorts, complete with a montage of them bonding and falling in love and singing along to Paris Hilton's Stars Are Blind at a pharmacy. Seriously, in my mind, I told myself, find yourself a man who would shamelessly sing along to a song as ridiculous as Stars Are Blind in public. For a moment there, I was happy for Cassie for opening herself up. But even while I was watching, I noticed how the use of romantic comedy tropes signaled to me that Wait, rom-coms have conditioned me to find guys like Ryan charming when they're persistent on asking you out, even when you tell them you're not looking to date anyone at the moment. So, this film is not meant to be comforting. Even the nicest of nice guys, Ryan, turns out to have played a role in rape culture. I won't spoil how that is, but I felt sick to my stomach when the twist was revealed. I felt personally betrayed. And this is where the brilliance of the casting works fantastically because Bo Burnham as the romantic lead disarmed me. And that's what the film asks us to reckon with. How do we treat the nice guys of the world who are also capable of doing heinous acts of violence against women? How do we treat victims and survivors? How different are our actions when the accused is someone we know personally? Especially someone we know to be a nice person. Part 3. Know Their Names She was fully formed from day one. Same face, same walk, and funny. Like a grown-up is funny, kind of shrewd. I was just in awe of her. I couldn't believe she wanted to be my friend. She didn't give a fuck what anyone else thought apart from me, because she was just... Nina. And then she wasn't. It is standard operating procedure in news media outlets to anonymize victims of sexual violence. The Associated Press, for instance, lays down their guidelines for respecting the privacy of victims, and I quote, We do not identify, in text or through images, persons who may have been sexually assaulted, unless they have come forward and voluntarily identify themselves. We should also use discretion in naming victims of others' extremely severe abuse, end quote. In high-profile publicized cases such as the aforementioned Stanford University rape case and the Steubenville, Ohio rape case, the victims were given the pseudonyms Emily Doe and Jane Doe respectively. The use of pseudonyms is a matter of editorial prerogative and so publications instead use generic or functional descriptions for the main purpose of anonymizing victims-survivors of sexual violence. Yet, while it may be the case that such choices protect the privacy of victims-slash-survivors, it poses questions regarding the women who are anonymized, genericized, or functionalized. Do the naming choices humanize or dehumanize her? In the matter of rape, survivors may be kept anonymous in news reports, perhaps because of the prevalence of victim-blaming. 
Ellen Fishbin said that the publication of a rape victim's name, quote, severely invades the personal privacy interests of the victim and exposes the victim to a variety of social and psychological problems, end quote. Yet, at the same time, the anonymity can be dehumanizing since it depersonalizes the victim. At this point, I move my discussion from the fictional film Promising Young Woman to a real-life promising young woman, Chanel Miller, the victim in the Stanford University rape case. Chanel Miller described the experience of dehumanization in her memoir, saying, I wondered how, in an instant, my identity had been reduced to the blacked-out and raped woman. This person who could never be a role model. At best, a cautionary tale. Editorial choices such as naming choices hold power. Such choices are capable of influencing the way we think about victims. Quoting Chanel Miller again, she said this in her victim impact statement that became viral. Um, This was back when she was still known as Emily Doe. In newspapers, my name was unconscious, intoxicated woman. Ten syllables, and nothing more than that. For a while, I believed that that was all I was. I had to force myself to relearn my real name, my identity, to relearn that this is not all that I am, that I am not just a drunk victim at a frat party bound behind a dumpster, while you are the all-American swimmer at a top university, innocent until proven guilty, with so much at stake. I am a human being who has been irreversibly hurt. My life was put on hold for over a year, waiting to figure out if I was worth something. There is a need for news media outlets that cover high-profile cases of sexual violence. And, you know, not even necessarily high-profile cases, but any sort of story that comes their way. There is a need for them to learn from the mistakes of the coverage of the Steubenville, Ohio case and the Stanford University case where the young men were humanized and framed as empathetic. Think of the impact of your journalistic work to the promising young woman who has to be anonymized, who has to keep her identity a secret in order to keep herself safe. Realistically, we can't expect every victim survivor to do what Chanel Miller did and come out to tell their story. Not everyone has the courage or the willpower to do so. And that's okay. And we can't ask them to exert the emotional labor just so we as a society can learn. Stop asking survivors the inane, dehumanizing questions. How old are you? How much do you weigh? What did you eat that day? Well, what did you have for dinner? Who made dinner? Did you drink with dinner? No, not even water? When did you drink? How much did you drink? What container did you drink out of? Who gave you the drink? How much do you usually drink? Who dropped you off at this party? At what time? But where exactly? What were you wearing? Why were you going to this party? What'd you do when you got there? Are you sure you did that? But what time did you do that? What does this text mean? Who are you texting? When did you urinate? Where did you urinate? With whom did you urinate outside? Was your phone on silent when your sister called? Do you remember silencing it? Really? Because on page 53, 
I'd like to point out that you said it was set to ring. Did you drink in college? You said you were a party animal? How many times did you black out? Did you party at frats? Are you serious with your boyfriend? Are you sexually active with him? When did you start dating? Would you ever cheat? You have a history of cheating? What do you mean when you said you wanted to reward him? Do you remember what time you woke up? Were you wearing your cardigan? What color was your cardigan? Do you remember any more from that night? No? Okay. Well, we'll let Brock fill it in. Disrupt the narrative that alcohol consumption excuses behaviors that lead to sexual assault. Alcohol is not an excuse. Is it a factor? Yes. But alcohol was not the one who stripped me, fingered me, had my head dragging against the ground with me almost fully naked. Having too much to drink was an amateur mistake that I admit to, but it is not criminal. Everyone in this room has had a night where they have regretted drinking too much or know someone close to them who has had a night where they have regretted drinking too much. Regretting drinking is not the same as regretting sexual assault. We were both drunk. The difference is, I did not take off your pants and underwear, touch you inappropriately, and run away. That's the difference. Chances are, there is someone in your life who is a Chanel Miller, a Nina, a Jane Doe. When they disclose to you what happened to them, how do you react? Do you ask them what they were wearing? Do you ask them, why didn't they call you for your help? Do you ask them if they had been drinking, who they were with? When they open up about being unsure if they had been assaulted, you know, when the sexual scripts become muddied and blurred, do you dismiss their vulnerability and make the conversation about you by saying, well, I actually like it rough? Do you teach your sons, nephews, or brothers the value of respect and consent and the humanity of women just as much as you caution your daughters, nieces, or sisters to be careful? Do you call out your bros who display behavior that perpetrates rape culture? How do you defy the cultural expectation to live the get-girls-get-drunk kind of life? And when you're alone with other men, how do you talk to each other about women? Do you use your position of power and authority to make sure victims get one step closer to justice or that you put systems in place to make sure that these crimes don't happen in the first place? If you think I was spared, came out unscathed, that today I ride off into the sunset while you suffer the greatest blow, you are mistaken. Nobody wins. We have all been devastated. We have all been trying to find some meaning in all of this suffering. Your damage was concrete, stripped of titles, degrees, enrollment. My damage was internal, unseen. I carry it with me. You took away my worth, my privacy, my energy, my time, my safety, my intimacy, my confidence, my own voice, until today. Conclusion Know your name. 
Chanel Miller is an exceptional woman in that she went through the hell of being sexually assaulted, being re-traumatized by the justice system, seeing her rapist serve only three of his six-month jail sentence, and reclaiming her name, her story, and her life. She is no longer defined as his victim. In fact, when you Google her name, the description under her name is American Writer not victim, not survivor. She is now known primarily as a writer and artist based in San Francisco. As people, we have the collective duty to make sure our survivors live out their full promise in spite of trauma. That they see themselves the way Chanel did and not let them down the way Nina was. It's on us. Chanel defied being defined as a victim. She is a beacon of hope, a real-life promising young woman whose story is a reminder to every victim survivor. Know your name and own your truth. To girls everywhere, I am with you. On nights when you feel alone, I am with you. When people doubt you or dismiss you, I am with you. I fought every day for you. So never stop fighting. I believe you. As the author Anne Lamott once wrote, lighthouses don't go running all over an island looking for boats to save. They just stand there shining. Although I can't save every boat, I hope that by speaking today, you absorbed a small amount of light, a small knowing that you can't be silenced, a small satisfaction that justice was served, a small assurance that we are getting somewhere, and a big, big knowing that you are important unquestionably. You are untouchable. You are beautiful. You are to be valued, respected, undeniably, every minute of every day. You are powerful, and nobody can take that away from you. To girls everywhere, I am with you. Thank you. This episode dealt with heavy topics that are nonetheless important and must be continued to be talked about. I've included in the episode description several links to online support groups based in the Philippines that cater to providing safe spaces to discuss about sexual harassment and other similar experiences. On top of that list of resources is Luna's Collective, a feminist inclusive chat service for Filipinos seeking support related to gender-based violence and reproductive health. You can send an email to feministinprogresspod at gmail.com for comments, conversation, and collaboration. The link to the transcript of the episode is in the episode description. If you find value in what I do, consider giving a donation via paypal.me slash feministinprogress. Follow me on Instagram at uh, feministinprogresspod. (laughs) Almost forgot my own handle. And remember, progress, not perfection.